Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with Yu Tianwei. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, on Wednesday kicked off Exercise Steadfast Defender 2024, its largest military drill since the Cold War. NATO says the drills will take place in several locations and run until May. Some 90,000 troops from NATO's 31 members and Sweden are participating, and it will mobilize unprecedented numbers of ships, aircraft, fighter jets, tanks, and military equipment, according to media reports. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine will soon approach the two-year mark. So what does NATO's military exercise mean for the evolving global security landscape? For that, let's loop in our panelists. For more on the NATO latest joint military exercise in Brussels, Fraser Cameron, senior advisor to the European Policy Center in Brussels. In Beijing, Cui Hongjian, director of the Department of European Studies with China Institute of International Studies. Professor Cui, tell me more about what is really behind the largest scale military exercise after the Cold War. I think uh, at least there are three considerations behind this uh, so-called largest exercise by NATO at this moment. One of them undoubtedly is about the situation of the uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict. As we know recently, uh, because of the uh, political problem, the United States decreased its um, you know, uh, military assistance to Ukraine. Also at the same time, most of the uh, European uh, countries, they uh, showed a lot of uh, hesitance to uh, supply a long time you know, assistance to Ukraine. So I think it's time for the NATO to show its so-called solidarity uh, on its uh, policy towards Ukraine. Secondly, how about this, uh, I think, NATO tried to practice its uh, long-term strategy against uh, Russia. As we know, during the uh, last summit, NATO launched a long-term strategy towards uh, Russia even after this uh, uh, conflict between Ukraine and Russia. So I think it's time for NATO to practice it and to show off its uh, commitment, mm. not only to Ukraine and also to all of the, uh, its uh, member states. Right. Of course, I think that there are also a third consideration, maybe not so directly, but uh, I think it's important. Uh, it's, um, I think, showed a, a, a concern or kind of a worry from by the administration and also European uh, member states about the forthcoming election in United States. Also, you know, once the, uh, Mr. Trump go back to the White House, certainly there will be some negative impact on NATO itself. I think now it's time for NATO to show uh, how it's important, mm-hmm. uh, not only for European security and also for American politics. Well, quite simply, it's concern about Russian activities against Georgia in 2008 and then oh, Crimea in 2014 and then the of Ukraine two years ago. This obviously alarmed uh, all NATO members. And there's one thing that Russia respects, and that is um, power and defense. And so this exercise is a demonstration of NATO's deterrence capability involving almost 100,000 troops over several months deploying to the Eastern Front. That's a reminder to Russia that this is NATO territory. Please keep out. Now, let's move on to another question, which is how do you look at the role of NATO today, given the hotspot and crisis 
that we have seen in different parts of the world. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, it's only one of them. And you also see what's going on in the Middle East. Um, so tell me more, Professor Cui, about how NATO is looking at how the world is evolving and its security role. Is it reflected this time in this military exercise? I think it's a, a special and a, a con controversial uh, uh, issue of the result of the uh, NATO, especially after the Cold War. Also, you know, uh, since the end of the Cold War, a lot of uh, European people, uh, they, do not, they didn't think that the NATO uh, has uh, so many reasons to uh, survive. But uh, as we know, yeah. because of the uh, uh, strategy from the United States towards uh, Europe and also the relations between U European countries and Russia, I think they give some space for NATO. And now, of course, Ukraine uh, crisis or some other crisis uh, surrounding the European uh, region give another reason uh, for NATO's uh, survival. But now I think the question for NATO could be, how about the, uh, uh, NATO to uh, prove that uh, its um, so-called connective security mm -hmm. is still, I mean, uh, reasonable for the current uh, European security situation, mm. especially once there are some more or long-time uh, confrontation between NATO and Russia, uh, in the future. So how about this space for real European security? Mm. I think another very big question for European itself is uh, once there is a NATO, once there is a more confrontation between NATO and Russia, where is a space for European strategic autonomy? I think now we can find out some uh, uh, maybe new situation. And uh, for example, now the European countries, they try to organize their own uh, military force to you know, uh, uh, guide its uh, uh, vessels and its uh, uh, transportation uh, through Middle East, through a uh, Red Sea. Uh, it's a different. I think it's different, different from uh, conservation from uh, uh, United States and the mm -hmm. uh, uh, UK. So I think it shows also the gap between the European security and uh, the role of NATO in European security. Well, after the end of the Cold War, there were many people who thought there was no need for NATO anymore. And they thought this was the, the end of history and everyone would be living happily, peacefully together. But of course, it's turned out very different. And now, not only has NATO kept its raison d'etre, but other members, particularly most recently, Finland and Sweden now, have set to join NATO. So in essence, what happened of Ukraine has turned out to be an own goal for Mr. Putin by strengthening the alliance, bringing in new members, and all NATO members are now increasing their defense expenditure. So NATO has now got a, a renewed sense of purpose. Now, we know the European Union is a combination of many countries. NATO, of course, uh, as a defense alliance, uh, combines uh, members much beyond Europe. So how do you see the different interests even on the issue of security and how the interest on security vis-a-vis -vis the interest for uh, economic and trade growth, how do you articulate all of this? How do you see NATO is doing its job at this moment? As we know, it's always a big problem for uh, NATO how to uh, you know, find out its own uh, solidarity or consistent I mean, uh, goals for all of the member states. Actually, now, uh, among all of the member states of uh, NATO, they do have a different concern, not only from so-called strategic level and from a real 
security level. Mm -hmm. And we can find out the difference between Washington and Berlin and uh, Paris on the various uh, security concerns. I think now, of course, the NATO tried to expand its uh, missions, not only from traditional security, or from some uh, uh, also in a non-conventional security, but now also I think it's give another problem or challenges for NATO, how to find out the common uh, security uh, threat, right. especially now even on the Russia, we can find the different concerns from uh, member states. But of course, I think now it's time. Also, it's a reason why NATO try to have some more military access, mm. and the ch- uh, NATO try to have some more so-called a threat and, and also challenges like China. So I think it's, um, uh, how to say, it's, um, uh, I think, an effective uh, development for the uh, NATO in the future. Because once they try to have some more solidarity, mm-hmm. they try to have, have to find some more threats. I think it's a very, very bad situation, not only for NATO itself, and also for the so-called uh, European security concern. There is a growing consensus amongst all European members of NATO that they have to do more. I mean, the pressure has been coming from Washington, notably from uh, Trump when he was president. And there's concern that if he comes back into the White House, this will have implications for NATO as well. So there's now a serious discussion about not only increasing defense expenditure, but also how to make sure that the money spent on defense in Europe is more effective because it's quite clear that Europe will have to do more in terms of its own defense in the future. Thank you for your insights. The New Year tourism boom in Harbin and Shanghai may just be the tip of the iceberg as more people set their sights on vacation travels. The upcoming Spring Festival or the Lunar New Year in China is another time for Chinese to join families on holiday. The Chun Yun or the Spring Festival travel rush will run from January the 26th this week to March the 5th for 40 days, with 9 billion passenger trips expected to be made, making a new historic high. One person whose business is to know what people want for their travels is the CEO of Trip.com, Sun Jie, or Jason. I recently caught up with her, and she got me up to speed on the latest travel tips and trends. Jane, good to see you here Thank in Davos. You. Thank you. This year, of course, a lot of discussion about where economies is going. For your platform, you're almost like the weather forecast right. of China's economy. Tell me more about how do you feel the temperature? Yeah, uh, for travel industry, it's recovering very fast. We have four segments. The first one is Chinese people travel within China, and that's recovering very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only we recover fully to 2019 level, we exceeded 2019 level by more than 50%, wow. uh, which is wonderful to see. The second piece is bring Chinese people from China to the rest of the world. And we look at both demand side based on our search volume and supply side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the demand side already exceeded 2019 level. However, on the supply side, we still have two major hurdles. The first one is the visa restriction. Uh, for some regions, the application for the visas are very complex. and it's 
taking more than two to six months to apply for. For example, the visa to Shenzhen region and to America. Uh, so we're hoping it's going to be improved uh, very soon. And then the third piece is to welcome uh, the rest of the world to China. And I think Chinese government is doing a wonderful job opening its free visa uh, for six countries as the first uh, step, which includes France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, and Malaysia. And this week, we added two more countries to the list, which is Switzerland and Ireland. Mm -hmm. And Singapore and China will have a mutual bilateral free visa, mm -hmm. and Thailand will have a bilateral free visa. So we are very positive to attract more and more friends from the rest of the world into China. Three areas you mentioned. Let's handle them one by one if we can. Sure. Domestic travel, as you said, picked up dramatically. Mm. And recently we see local governments trying to put out efforts in order to attract us tourists go to their localities Correct. in northeast part of China, in Harbin, Shanghai, and earlier we also see Zibo, for mm. example, from Shandong. But tell me whether these are temporary phenomena. Mm. What to you, running a platform like yours, mm. is the sustainable way to be successful. Mm. Yeah, I think the young people are always trying to find a special uh, sparkles during different seasons. So I'm very glad this winter season, Harbin stands out. And it's also a joint efforts between government, uh, individuals, community, and uh, online travel, travel platform. Uh, so we're very positive. And different seasons will have different highlights. Uh, Shanghai, this time there is a movie. Uh, next time maybe it's a concert. Uh, so many different seasons will bring different opportunities into the region. So how much, uh, in a way, this is in the planning process? Or actually, we're seeing all these phenomena out of great surprise. Mm, true. Uh, Harbin always have wonderful uh, ice festival. But this time, I think, through uh, the joint efforts between the government, mm -hmm. community, and online platform of trip.com, trip we are able to uh, to a much better uh, promotion pre-warming uh, the market. Harbin, as we know, that's what, just one of the interesting examples. Uh, in northeast part of China, it is being called the old steel district, Correct. isn't it? Correct. Used to be a huge manufacturing which mm -hmm. has been out of date, mm -hmm. factories closed, and since then economy has been going uphill, yet uh, not necessarily with ease. Mm -hmm. Now it seems that there is a window opportunity. Absolutely. But how big is this window? Yeah. You know what they need to do? I think uh, the northern uh, eastern part have very good opportunity to use uh, travel as a mean all year round because in the winter we have ice festival, ski festival. Mm -hmm. In the winter it's much cooler than the southern part of China and of course spring and fall are beautiful. So if the government and the community does it in the right way, we will be able to bring consistent volume into the region. Mm -hmm. uh, so travel should be one of the pillar uh, for the industry over there. About China's enthusiasm of going to the rest of the world, mm. you hear people around the world stay saying, please come, right. the Chinese, please come to our part of the world. And yet, as you said, there are obstacles mm. right over there. Meanwhile, there is a lot of, it seems to be, uh, misinformation mm. about China mm. that people are beginning to rethink 
who the Chinese are. Mm. Um, what do you think uh, about these mixed phenomena? Mm. At least from what we can see, the interest from Chinese people to travel abroad is still very strong. So based on the search volume, we can see uh, it's already far exceeded 2019 level. Where do they want to go? Yeah, they in, uh, in Europe, France, Switzerland, and Spain are the top uh, three travel destinations. In Middle East, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, um, Turkey, Egypt are the top uh, destination. Uh, so in Asia, Japan, Korea, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand are the top destinations. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. But uh, how much do you think still needs to be done in order to facilitate their traveling abroad? Mm. I think it's really a test for the government how fast they can grasp these opportunities because people are ready to go. For example, in GCC countries, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, uh, and also Saudi offers either e-visa or free visa and they double the flight capacity. So we're bringing tens of people over there. Thailand, the minister, uh, Prime Minister went to the airport uh, to welcome Chinese tourists, and they offer free visa for five months, so people are going there. Singapore, if you go through the border control, you don't need to talk to any officers. Automatically, the door will open for you, very smooth. So these countries who sense the opportunity, put investment ahead of the time, now they're harvesting from their investment. I'm very hopeful that now the door is open, uh, people's enthusiasm uh, to go to these countries are very high. Mm -hmm. I hope it will uh, make uh, the Awang travel really uh, being uplifting. Your platform reached its very high standard uh, in the middle of globalization, mm -hmm. certainly harvested the fruits from that period of time. But now we are in a fractured world as, as the World Economic Forum throughout the days have been discussing. Mm -hmm. So how do you see as a platform, the travel industry has been evolving mm -hmm. as a result of this mm -hmm. so far? Mm. Yeah, travel during the past three years have been hit very severely. Uh, lots of people lost their jobs, lots of business closed down. Mm. Uh, so this year is actually the full year uh, that's not going to be impacted by pandemic. Uh, so we will put work very hard with government, with community, with industry leaders uh, to make sure uh, we make a positive contribution uh, by adhere to the high quality of the services we are providing. So we are hopeful. What about international tourists to China or travelers to China? Um, we see even metropolitan cities in China these days. There are still only limited international visitors or people with foreign passports working in these areas. So many wonder how long it will take mm. and what are some of the basic conditions that people are looking for in order to travel to China, in order to make China once again extremely attractive mm. as it has been yeah. over the past four decades to the rest of the world. Mm. Yeah, I think China offers a lot to the world. We need to do a better job promoting traveling in China. Uh, so if you look at Thailand, 12% of their GDP are coming from inbound travel. Mm -hmm. Spain, France, about 7% of the GDP are coming from inbound travel. Um, and United States, 2 to 3% are from inbound travel. For China, in 2019, pre-COVID, 
0.5% of the GDP are from inbound travel. So we do have great potential to really grow inbound travel. And it's not only going to bring, you know, 2 to 3% of the GDP into the economy. It is also the best format to promote China, to tell a good story about China. Because people in China are very friendly and we have very rich history. We build beautiful infrastructure, high-speed railway is so advanced. We would like people around the world to get to know China through traveling into China. As you said, in a fractured world, communication is so important. Traveling, traveling certainly is one of the best facilitations for that. True. But when you are in such a situation, when our world is in such a situation, do you think there can be special services uh, special categories mm -hmm. of uh, traveling or uh, additional information being given yeah. to travelers so that to facilitate them with, with these kind of communication, as True. you say. True, absolutely. If we look at the leaders who are uh, you know, attracting so many inbound customers, we have a lot of improvements we can make. Mm -hmm. The first one is making visa application mm -hmm. easier. Yeah. Uh, so free visa is a good step. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the payment. China is no longer using uh, credit card or cash. We use WeChat Pay and Alipay, yes. but the foreign uh, visitors don't have that. Mm -hmm. uh, third one, we need to make the major traffic hubs bilingual, bicultural. Right. We need to do that. Fourthly, we need to allow more hotels to uh, be able to uh, host foreign friends. So there are many improvements we need to make. But I'm very positive because every improvement will translate into more volume into China. Trip.com has been a very prominent Chinese global company. Now, once again, we are in a very different circumstances compared to a few years ago. How are you coping with it? Mm -hmm. What is your identity, Chinese or global? Mm -hmm. uh, travel by itself is global. So particularly during the challenging period, uh, we really need to be engaged with the rest of the world. Uh, travel is uh, the best bridge to uh, be built between China and to the rest of the world. So our mission is while we are bringing pe sending people farther away, we are bring the world closer. So that's our mission. Uh, we are very proud and very committed to our mission. Final question about AI. Mm. It is really transforming everything that we are seeing today in the business world. How are you bringing in the new tools, analyze the new possibilities, while at the same time providing new options mm. for customers? Yeah, AI is very important. Uh, we are mainly using it in four areas. The first one is to improve user interface. Uh, the second one is to improve our productivity because mm -hmm. the coding time can be saved. The third one is improve the productivity for content generation. Mm -hmm. And fourth one is to improve the customer service level. But at this moment, there seems to be some pitfalls as a result of data and the search possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, one of it is the data coming from China, mainly in the Chinese language. Mm -hmm. So there is a a disadvantage, mm -hmm. at least for now, mm -hmm. uh, compared to English language mm -hmm. contents, for example. And therefore, how do you make sure this gap from your platform can be at least somewhat fixed? 
Mm. Yeah, so uh, the data needs to be uh, really global. Uh, fortunately for hotels, for example, mm -hmm. whoever using the hotel is not going to be limited by Chinese customers or foreign customers. Mm -hmm. It's going to be used by global customers. So there are lots of sharing uh, we can learn from. Mm. Jane, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. That's my latest conversation with Jay Sun, who is the CEO of Trip.com. That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of my team. Thanks for being with us. See you next week. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms.